Thank you all very much for joining us on a Friday morning. Um, we're delighted to see so many of you here. We have quite a lot to cover today and we are hopeful that we will have a bit of time at the end to take questions. Um, but if you do have questions along the way, if you could put them in the chat, um, then I can look at them and we can deal with them if we have time as we go or we'll, if not, we will try and pick them up at the end. So thanks very much, as I say, for coming to this, to this webinar on the new SRA sexual misconduct guidance. Um, my name is Beth Hale. I'm a partner and general counsel at CM Murray. Um, I'm joined today by two of my fellow partners, Andrew Pavlovich, who's a partner at CM Murray, specialises in uh, regulatory and professional discipline, um, and Corin Staves, who um, specialises in partnership law, non-contentious and contentious partnership law, and deals with sort of culture and also the constitutional issues that we're going to be talking today about how firms can deal with this guidance. Um, Ellen Pert is a partner at BCL Solicitors. Um, she specialises in serious and general crime matters with a particular focus on uh, sexual misconduct and defending those accused of sexual misconduct. So perfectly placed to talk to us today about how the new guidance and how guidance for solicitors more generally interacts with the criminal world and how and how that all sits together. So why we're here, why, why are we here today and why, and why the SOA getting so involved, I guess, is the first sort of thing to think about. Well, um, since Me Too, the hashtag Me Too movement broke, um, there has been a huge increase in society generally, I think, of reports of sexual misconduct. I think there is a much more awareness of, of what, of not just post Me Too, but in the run up to Me Too as well, um, huge increase in awareness of, of sexual misconduct and, and rights around sexual harassment in the workplace and more generally. Um, and as part of their guidance, when they published their guidance on the 1st of September, the SRA also published a statistic, which is that between 2013 and 2018, they had 30 reports of sexual misconduct in law firms the SRA received. From 2018 to now, they've had 251 reports of sexual misconduct and they have 117 ongoing investigations. So you can see that that's a sea change in the volume of sexual misconduct allegations which are which are coming on across the SRA's desk and so what they've done is they've published some long-awaited actually because they've been sort of saying they're going to be uh, taking an extra interest a particular interest in sexual misconduct and non-financial misconduct more generally but they so they've published this guidance about how firms should deal with sexual misconduct but more importantly how they will deal with allegations of sexual misconduct that come across their desk and it is to help firms manage uh, firms and individuals manage how they deal with, with these issues internally. Um, so I'm going to start by, uh, since we're here to talk about the regulatory landscape and the SRA issues, I'm going to start with talking, asking you, Andrew, so how, beyond what I've just said, how the regulatory landscape has changed since 2018 and why we've yeah. seen such a massive increase in the number of reports. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of things that the SRA have done. So they chose the date of 2018 there because that was the date in in March, where they published guidance about the use of non-disclosure agreements, both in relation to cover up matters, whether, whether solicitors are acting on behalf of clients, but also solicitors using NDAs to cover up their own firm's misconduct. And then we had the change in the self-reporting threshold, which came in with the SRA standards and regulations in November 2019. So previously, the, the requirement was to report serious misconduct, which meant that if an allegation was made, the firm could investigate it. If they established serious misconduct, that was the point at which they had to report. 
now they have to report where there are factual matters which give rise to a reasonable belief that there's been a serious breach of the regulatory arrangements, which is a bit of a mouthful. But essentially what it means is that if you're possessed with knowledge which suggests that there may have been a breach, then you should report that on an interim basis, saying to the SRA, this is what's been alleged, this is what we're doing to investigate. The SRA will then hopefully give you time to investigate and then you follow up with a report saying this is what we found, whether you found the misconduct proved or otherwise, and this is what the steps we've taken. So that self-reporting uh, reduction threshold has really prompted an increase in number of reports. And it's also meant that firms have had to report, not just report something, but actually do something about it so that they say this is what's come in and this is what we're doing and they need to then satisfy the SRA at the end of that process that they've, they've put in place an investigation which is is proper and has got to the bottom of the issue. Thanks Andrew and I, I think so the sort of follow-on from that is to just to, for Cohen if you, from a partnership perspective and I think sort of anecdotally and sort of in our own daily lives I think we've all seen a shift in culture a sort of cultural shift in how in attitudes to sexual misconduct but from a partnership perspective do you think there's been a change in approach by firms, by law firms, professional practice firms, and how they deal with sexual misconduct allegations and, and how those are managed internally and externally? I think, there, I think there really has been, Beth, yes. I think obviously the points that Andrew has raised on, on the regulatory landscape are highly relevant to that point. But I think that there's been a cultural shift as well. Um, a generation ago, for example, if there was a, a misconduct allegation or um, a sexual misconduct allegation or indeed any conduct uh, allegation, <clears throat> that was um, investigated and found to be true. And then there was a sense of let's let's sweep this under the carpet, let's keep it quiet, let's try and protect ourselves, let, let, let's let this person leave quietly, let's not make a fuss. Um, and that I think was sort of probably wrongly born out of an idea of trying to sort of protect the firm, the firm's reputation, sort of make sure things aren't blown out of proportion for, for the individual who has been the perpetrator of that behaviour. But now there's a much better recognition of the fact that actually that's not fair. This person has has been has there's been guilty of misconduct of some sort. And it's not aligned with the culture and the values of the firm to permit that, to, to be permissive of those sorts of behaviours. And therefore it's aligned with firm's culture to call out inappropriate behaviour and to demonstrate that that's not um, acceptable within the culture and the values of the firm. And also in the situation where there may have been a victim of that person's misconduct to demonstrate to the, the victim that um, that their rights are not going to be secondary to those of the, the perpetrator. Thanks, Karen. And, and Ellen, just to come to you, that from a criminal perspective, um, has this have you seen this cultural shift impact on your practice? And, uh, you know, do you, are you dealing with an num increased number of complaints against solicitors, for example, solicitors being accused of criminal sexual misconduct? Yes, I, I have seen an increase um, in, in allegations being made against solicitors and other professionals. And I think it just reflects, um, I think over the last couple of years, and certainly since the Sarah Everard incident, um, that high profile matter led to people feeling more able to come forward. Um, and, and that's just continued uh, since then. And, and I also reflected that I think the COVID pandemic allowed people time to um, have time to themselves and sort of reflect on incidents that may have taken place and, um, you know, in recent years and, and thought actually that wasn't okay. So we have had a, a swell of um, complaints actually 
and allegations being made. And that just actually reflects, I looked at the ONS data, there was a 20, 26% increase in the number of allegations of rape from March 22. So I think that is, um, you know, it's certainly moving that way. It's interesting that the, the lockdown COVID issue, because I think that has had a real impact in terms of that, that people's certainly in, in terms of workplace allegations, that, that distance from the workplace, that the, mm. the knowledge that they don't have to go in and physically face their, um, the, the person against whom they're making allegations, I think has made a real difference to people's willingness to report. I think we saw quite a lot of people feeling able to report when they might not otherwise have done. Yes, I think that's um, right. So now that we've that sort of really helpful background, um, I was just going to come on to the guidance itself and what it says and, and why it's published now. And I think we've dealt a bit with why it's published now, but Andrew, just briefly setting out the background to this and what, what's in it. Yeah, so obviously we had the increased number of reports and that meant that the SRA had cases to start prosecuting. And we saw a number of those and they usually involved partners in appropriate conduct towards trainees, paralegals or juniors, unwanted touching, unwanted inappropriate messages, unwanted sexual advances, etc. And the, the princi SRA principles that are usually infringed in that scenario are what, is, what are now principle two, which is acting in a way which upholds public confidence in the profession, and principle five, acting with integrity. And in cases where the conduct occurs in an office environment or towards a client, I think it's fairly straightforward. But where we have cases occurring in a solicitor's private life, that's where the boundaries become a bit more blurred. And that's what this guidance is intended to, to address. So we obviously had the Beckwith case, which I'm not going to go into in detail, because I think most people on this call will know quite a lot about that by now. But essentially, in that case, the High Court in allowing an appeal by Beckwith said that solicitors were not required to be paragons of virtue in their private life and that where the SRA was making allegations of acting within, about integrity or other, other allegations of breaches of principles there had to be a, a connection to the individual's practice and standing in, in the profession and um, so it wasn't open for the SRA just to or the tribunal to find that people had, breathed, had acted without integrity just because they considered that the conduct was inappropriate. There had to actually be a link between the conduct and the individual's profession. So a large part of this guidance is devoted to that issue of when someone's conduct is in their private life is sufficiently proximate to practice that the SRA will consider it to be a regulatory matter. And the sort of circumstances and things they talk about are um, you know, client events or work events, where I think most people accept that you know, they are still, they still have obligations, certainly from an employment perspective, to, to their colleagues and um, fellow, fellow acquaintances. And then the more sort of difficult aspect where you have your um, Christmas party or your client network event, and then you go on to a, a nightclub or the pub, and are you still uh, acting as a solicitor there and can you still be within the SRA's jurisdiction there and what the SRA say there is that the proximity is weakened when you go on when you go on to that event but it's not extinguished so if you were to go to a Christmas party for example with with uh, colleagues and with that same group of colleagues you then went on to a nightclub there was some misconduct that occurred 
think the SRA are likely to say that that conduct was still sufficiently proximate to your practice because the firm event was the originating event. You were with colleagues and therefore that's some, probably an area where they would take action. Thanks, Andrew. I think this proximity to practice point is so key to the whole guidance and it's something that even before the guidance was published that firms have been sort of grappling with and how to how sometimes to how to distance themselves to, to sort of remove that link so that so that they they can't be for example vicariously liable which is a sort of linked but separate issue um, for conduct of, of their partners and staff and Karen, how are you seeing firms sort of deal with that issue, this proximity to practice issue in, in practice? There's too many practices in that sentence. But. <laughs> Thanks, Beth. Um, the honest answer is there's a, there's a real spectrum here. There are some firms that are, frankly, not considerate at all, uh, taking a very sort of laissez-faire attitude and saying, well, actually, no, we trust people to behave appropriately. Therefore, we're not going to implement measures to sort of to manage the risks for individuals and, and for the firm as a whole. And at the other end of the spectrum, there are some firms that are very actively taking steps to, to mitigate those risks. I think if I could, could generalise wildly, I think it's those firms that have had issues in the past that are at this end of the spectrum and those firms that have been fortunate enough not to have issues yet or, or not at all uh, at this end of the spectrum. In terms of steps that, that firms are taking, I mean, they're just really practical things. It's obviously, alcohol, and then we're going to come on to talk more about alcohol later, is often a, a, an aggravating factor in, in uh, people's um, lapses in behaviour. And so some firms are introducing sort of alcohol policies. Um, they're thinking carefully about the type of activities that they um, host for teams. Um, there might be a limit on the amount of alcohol available. I mean, that, some firms don't like that because it looks like people are being stingy when people are working hard. Uh, but but the, the, the driver might be sort of a, a desire to try and manage that. I mean, there's also sort of diversity points there because not everybody enjoys the, a drinking culture. There might be uh, cultural reasons or... or People who are pregnant are excluded because they, they can't sort of in, enjoy that, sorry, not enjoy, uh, partake in that uh, activity. Um, there are also um, sort of activities, behaviours that can be encouraged. For example, um, you might have a, a sort of a designated driver partner, someone who's designated is going to be at the event for the whole time and not to be involved in the um drinking alcohol or, or so their judgment can be the they're the one who's in charge and checking that everybody's okay um sometimes there might be strict policies around when the partners leave so you're there for the christmas party and then you take the credit card away from behind the bar and everybody all the partners leave at 10 30 p.m and if the rest of the team then choose as a social event um as a private social event to go to the nightclub if they've got the energy to do it they can do that um, whereas if a partner goes as well and takes the um, firm's credit card with them then that's looking much more proximate to workplace than, than if the partners had all said, right, that's it, we'll see you <laughs> tomorrow, don't worry if you're late. Did, did you see what I mean? Um, the other one I just want to pick up because it's it's that time of year is, is conferences. Um, how proximate are you to your workplace when you're at an international conference? I mean, you, you're there for work. Um, it's, it's a BD event, you're sort of an ambassador for your firm. The whole point is you're trying to pick up work and network with people and things like that. So the likelihood is that actually, you're at work 24 hours a day um, and that includes <laughs> at the breakfast buffet it includes you know during the actual sort of formal conference bit it includes you know the dinner and then the after party again if you've got the energy to do that so it, it's that's a really good example I think of, of where actually it could be the whole time that a person is is proximate to their professional practice. 
I totally agree. I think conferences are such a, a, um, a sort of interesting and risky area, international or otherwise. I know you know lots of conferences go on in the UK, but you're, if you're staying overnight, if you're there in a hotel, whether it's an internal or external conference, I think it's um you know I think that I think the approach has to be really 24 hours. That's you know you're you're on duty as it were for those purposes. Um, so. Just one area where there's no um, requirement for proximity to practice, where the SRA say that they will take it, take action or will, are likely to take action, even if that, that sort of proximity to practice link is broken, is, is criminal conduct. Um, and Andrew, can you just, I'll come on to, to Ellen to talk about sort of these, the criminal law issues here, but what, what does the guidance say about criminal convictions? Yeah, so as you say, um, there doesn't need to be any link to proximity to practice where there's a criminal conviction, and the authority for that is the case with SRA v Maine, where a solicitor committed a sexual offence, which was completely unconnected to private practice, for which they were placed on the sexual offences register, and the High Court accepted the SRA's submission in that case that it har would harm the reputation of the profession for someone on the sexual offences register to be able to practice so you're not looking there at is it proximate to practice you're simply looking at the harm to the reputation of the profession so i think that is fairly well established and where the guidance becomes a bit more controversial is where it says that there may be allegations for example of sexual harassment or sexual assault which are potentially criminal in nature but either no criminal complaint has been made or a criminal complaint has been made and the police has decided to take no further action and the SRA made clear that they may still proceed with a prosecution in the tribunal in these circumstances. And actually they go even further and say someone could go for a criminal trial, be acquitted and still face regulatory action because the, the ambit of professional misconduct is wider than the criminal law. Um, so I think, you know, obviously Alan will be talking shortly about the criminal aspects of this, but I think it is a real minefield for for individuals, because even if the police aren't involved, there's the potential that they could become come involved, and obviously the SRA and the tribunal could be effectively trying to determine whether something criminal has occurred. And Ellen, that makes your life pretty difficult, doesn't it? If you're advising someone who has gone through a criminal process, been acquitted, but there's still this risk of SRA um, action hanging over them? Yes, it, it can it can be very difficult indeed. I mean, just dealing with um, an instance in which the police have decided to take no further action, the difficulty there is it doesn't mean that's the end of the matter because there are a number of different alternatives. So first of all, the complainant can exercise a right of victim right of re review um, and ask that the that no further action decision is looked at again. Um, the evidence in any SRA investigation and subsequent proceedings could potentially be deemed to be um, classed as new evidence, um, which would be something which could then lead to the no further action decision being reviewed. Um, and the, the third point is, even if there isn't a criminal investigation, it doesn't mean that there never will be one, because complainants can say um, at one time, of course, actually, I don't want to go to the police. And then years or months later say, actually, I, I do want to go and report this to the police. So we would always have a mind on, you know, what admissions have been made, what account has been put on the record, because it's all about 
um, you know, consistency of evidence, you know, whichever way you're looking at it, whether you're representing a suspect, you know, somebody under investigation or whether you're, um, you might be advising a complainant. So, um, and then you've got all of the other issues about the admissibility of evidence in one or other of those proceedings. Um, so it really is a minefield, I'm afraid. And you potentially have these sort of three sets of investigation, the, the sort of internal, how the firm is dealing with it, what the firm, what the firm's investigation looks like. Then you have the potential SRA investigation, which may or may not piggyback off that firm investigation. And then mm. you have the potential criminal investigation. So it's a, it's a sort of, that evidential issue is really difficult, isn't it, I think? Yes, yeah. Um, so the, the guidance also says that the SRA will consider reporting sexual misconduct allegations to the police if they consider that, if they, the SRA, consider that the conduct could amount to criminal to a criminal offence. Um, and it's obviously, you would hope that they have some sort of proper mechanisms in place to manage that. And I think, Andrew, if you could just sort of tell us what those are. Yes, so the SRA has memorandums of understanding with various organisations, including, including law enforcement agencies, for the provision and transfer of information. They also have their first principles of disclosure, which they have on their website, which sets out sort of the factors they will consider when making decisions to disclose to law enforcement agencies or other regulatory bodies. They say in that that they will usually pass any information on at the end of an investigation or when some or a process has concluded. But I know speaking to Ellen that sometimes it doesn't always work as cleanly as that and you can have sort of things running in, in parallel. Um, so I had a, attended a conference where Juliet Oliver, General Counsel of the SRA, was speaking last week and she said, told me that, uh, and not just me, she told everyone who was there, that the, um, uh, the SRA have had training from people, police and barristers, so that when that first a complaint of sexual misconduct comes in, they know the right questions to ask and how to deal with it. And they also have a protocol in which they tell the complainant that they may report the matter to the police and that that is a decision that the SRA makes and is not within exclusively within the individual's um, election. They will take into account the individual's uh, feelings if they don't want it to be reported to the police, but ultimately it's an SRA decision if they decide to do that. Ellen, presumably that again brings in those sort of evidential concerns that you've already discussed. But just that. Yes, I mean there's a there's a few concerns. I mean, obviously it's good that we have the first principles of disclosure policy, which clarifies how they will deal with disclosure of information. Um, my initial concern would be that the point Andrew's just raised, which is um, reporting to the police, even if a complainant doesn't wish for that to re report to be made. Um, I mean, the way the system works is that a complainant often, I mean, I, I do represent complainants as well. They may feel as if once they're in the system, they can't get out of it because you are, you are well supported by victim liaison officers and you will be encouraged to continue with that complaint. So I, I just, um, I feel slightly uneasy about that. Um, as to sort of any concerns with regard to um, how evidence is preserved, um, Andrew had obviously told me about what he'd heard from Julia Oliver, and it's and it's good to know that the SRA are going to be trained in or have been trained in how to take um, those first reports because 
that would be a concern otherwise, because it's very important that those notes, the initial notes that are taken are accurate. Um, so it's good to know that something's being done, but I'm still slightly concerned about, about that report on the behalf of the complainant. Particularly, presumably, given the length of time that the criminal justice system is taking to process, um, to get through matters and to hear. Uh, Absolutely, especially at the moment, yes, when the backlog is becoming even bigger. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the key points emphasised, and sorry, just on backlog, that's also obviously the case for, I mean, the SRA is not speedy at hearing things that, you know, and in the same way, the Employment Tribunal is not, you know, none, none of these processes are really swift, um, under-resourced. We, we could have a whole day on, on talking about that, so we won't go into it in too much detail now. Um, so one of the key points emphasised in the guidance is that conduct will be considered more serious when it's sexually motivated. Um, and Andrew, just can you talk to us about what that means in practice? Yes, yeah, so the guidance says that they wouldn't normally take action against someone who puts their arm around someone's waist in an overly friendly manner. Uh, would have been a bit clumsy effectively and uh, we saw an example of this uh, uh, recently where a, a partner was rebuked because uh, after a, a networking event they ended up in a strip club with a with a trainee and sensing the trainee was uncomfortable the partner put this uh, his arm around her waist a couple of times um, the SRA in deciding to rebuke him uh, found expressly that his conduct wasn't sexually motivated and um, so they, they seemed to accept that he actually did genuinely think that he was what he was doing was would, would try and reassure her and make her feel a bit um, more comfortable about the fact they're in a strip club um, so that's the sort of example of a case where they will look seriously at the motivation and obviously the sort of cases where motivation will be relevant is if there's a power imbalance um, where the conduct is premeditated, where the individual knows that the, the conduct was unwanted and carries on anyway, where the conduct is repeated. So these are all things that would go to seriousness because they would suggest that someone was, was doing what they were doing in, in a motivated and deliberate and calculated way. Alan, to what extent does that sort of tie in or mirror the, the criminal position on, on motive? Yes, you're right. It, it does actually mirror the um, CPS, Crown Prosecution Service, Rape and Sexual Offences Guidance. Um, their strategy focuses on the actions that they say are used or generally used by suspects. Um, and the way they approach it is it's a suspect-centric approach. So they look at the actions of a suspect before, during and after an alleged sexual assault, um, because they then say you can understand the proper context of the instance. So that means... For example, if somebody has been targeted, if there has been control or coercion exerted, um, or why somebody has interacted with someone who was very intoxicated. Um, and there's also a parallel with something called the Vulnerable Victims Toolkit. So it all highlights how the CPS look at sort of common types, they say, of um, tactics and behaviours of people who might engage in this sort of conduct. So I think you're right, what you say is it does sort of mirror that approach that's taken uh, with the CPS. Which is helpful when we're talking about these kind of parallel lines of investigation. Yeah. It's helpful if they all yeah. have a sort of similar set of yeah. tactics being applied, isn't it? Um, so 
Corin rightly mentioned alcohol earlier, and um, I think it is such a key feature of almost all the cases that we see, and um, you know a, a lot of what the the SRA see. So I think that's you know they've rightly addressed it to some extent in the guidance. Um, so what what does it actually say, Andrew, about what about the role of alcohol in their in sexual misconduct cases? Yeah, so they say very clearly that being drunk will never be a defence to an allegation and it could either be an aggravating or a mitigating factor. And I would have thought that it's more likely to be an aggravating than a mitigating factor, particularly if you're, you're saying I was so drunk I didn't know what I was doing or I, I couldn't remember what happened because I think they would consider that someone who gets them into a state where they can't remember what they've done is, is a regulatory risk. Um, the sorts of cases where it may be a mitigating factor in which we've seen previously has been where someone has had a relatively low amount of alcohol, but it's, um, they've been on medication and there's been some kind of mix, uh, mix there. Um, I've, I've had a case where someone had a sort of acute anxiety disorder and they felt very uncomfortable with large crowds and they drank to try and reassure themselves before an event. But yes, in general, I would have thought it would, it would not be, certainly not a defence, and it's unlikely to, to be much of a mitigating factor unless there is some kind of medical reason that you could, you could get in there. Yeah, thanks. And, and Corinne, you touched on this, but just if you could go into a little bit more detail, how are firms addressing that issue, um, sort of alcohol at work events? Mm, thank you. Um, well, I mean, like I said before, there's a spectrum. I think some firms aren't. Uh, I think there's still a culture in, in some environments of, of of drink being sort of central to an excessive drinking. I don't mean, you know, sort of one glass of wine and everybody goes home. You know, the sort of quite sort of strong uh, drinking culture in some organisations and, and less so in others. I think where those firms um, have experienced issues with with alcohol misuse before or substance misuse before, um, and they are introducing measures, it is things like you know designated sober partner, uh, managing the amount of alcohol, being mindful of uh, having a mix of events. All, all social events don't have to revolve around drinking and sort of late night entertainment, you know, evening entertainment. It could be daytime activities. It could be non-food and drink related activities. So just being sort of more thoughtful uh, around sort of those, those that decision making. But I think the other key thing that, that firms can do and the partners that can do is, is set the right tone, because I think that the, the, the team as a whole um, will, will look at the partners as their leaders and, and take the example from, from those partners. So if the partners set the tone of going out and getting incredibly drunk and not being respectful of others or um, not, not being mindful of the impact that that, that behaviour is having, then that might encourage other people to behave in that way. Whereas if the partners are, are being good leaders and setting good examples, um, then then I think that sort of that culture, that tone is, is really led from, from the top. And I, I think you can't really write that in a policy and try and write it in a policy, but it, you need more than just the policy. <laughs> what, what you need is the right sorts of leaders, the sorts of leaders that understand what the culture of the firm requires and, and to, to, to really lead by example. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, that, that sort of people are working really hard, you know, lawyers work hard and, and that sort of providing that release and providing social events, work social events where people can have sort of let off steam in that way is, you know, I think... I often get accused of being the fun police because I tell people, you know, because I talk to people about this kind of stuff. But I think it's it's a balance, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, no one is saying you can't have work social events anymore. No one is saying, you know, never, never drink a glass of wine. But it's it's just about um, kind of uh, moderation 
um, and sort of managing it from a work perspective. Um, I think that's right, Beth, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really hard balance to strike for lots of firms. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so what, and what we often see in our practice is people saying, I can't recall what I did. I was too drunk and I can't remember what I did. Um, and it, obviously that's something we have to grapple with from a sort of employment perspective, from a, from a regulatory perspective. But I'd be interested to know how the criminal courts view that. That, okay, well, if a client came to me, and, and to be honest, it, obviously it does happen, um, you know, they or they go out and they have so much to drink and they have a blank for a particular memory blank for a particular part of the evening, that is not a good starting point. Because obviously when you're taking instructions from somebody in that position and an allegation has been made, um, you need to be able to positively give instructions about what happened and what's, um, you know, you're alleged to have done this, and, and if somebody's saying I can't remember, that is that's a disaster, obviously. So um, you're then left with somebody saying, well, I know I wouldn't have, I know I don't behave like that, or I've never done that before, or I would normally do this. Well, that's just it, it's not it's not really good enough. So you may then be left with um, uh, you know accounts of witnesses or CCTV footage um, if it's something that's happened more recently. So it, it's not. Um, it's a difficult position for somebody to be in when they may present in that way. But if that's their honest um, recollection of the evening and they can't remember, then then obviously you are you deal with the situation accordingly. Um, I mean, obviously, in terms of intoxication, generally, um, public policy plays a strong factor in ascertaining whether somebody's intoxication can be used as a defence. And essentially, whether it's voluntary or involuntary it's not a defense per se so um i mean obviously it's it's far more complicated than that with regard to criminal law but that's the general that's the general rule um so yeah all i would say is um if somebody can't remember anything in that situation it, it does cause problems when you're taking instructions yeah absolutely thanks Ellen. um uh, another really difficult issue that the guidance does seek to address is, is the issue of consent um, and and if you just tell us briefly what the guidance says about that what the SOA's view is. Yeah as far as you say I mean consent is a, a very difficult issue which I'm sure you know forms a lot of part of Ellen's job and the SRA's guidance is really just a short paragraph acknowledging that consent is difficult and that trying to work out whether consent is meaningful can be challenging where there are issues of alcohol and intoxication, where there's that senior junior dynamic. So I think all they're really doing in the guidance is saying, yes, we accept this is a, a difficult area. It may be a, a defense to a, 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 a regulatory allegation in the same way that it could be to a criminal one. But yeah, I think this is where another area where again, I think it starts to get a bit uncomfortable and we have the tribunal determining on the, this to the civil standard, of course, which is the balance of probabilities, whether an act was consensual or not. Um, you know, as I can't imagine when people signed up to become solicitor members or lay members of the tri solicitor disciplinary tribunal 10 years ago, they ever thought they would be, in a, be having to determine these type of issues, which seems to me are probably best dealt with by, by criminal courts. Um, but you know this is this is where we're going, and 
you know, the, the SRA have got good people, they have got the training, they, they do say that they are sort of investing in this area, but it certainly is to me a little bit worrying that this could all be played out in, in a tribunal operating a, a civil standard of proof. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the issues in the Beckwith case, wasn't it, that the SRA sort of didn't grapple with the consent issue. Um, and that's, you know, that was part of the yeah. problem with how they presented their case. Yes, I um, mean, they, they effectively, how... sorry, Beth, just say, I mean, just on that case, they, they effectively didn't ask the tribunal to determine the issue of consent. Yeah. It was just sort of left in the, in the background, hanging in the background, and they, and they just presented the case purely on the basis of a an abuse of seniority and taking unfair advantage and I you know, you know I don't think that's not great for the for the victim obviously uh, but I think I can see why they did that because it really is a, a hornet's nest and it's a very very difficult issue for, for a tribunal to resolve. Well as we've been as we discussed when we we're sort of having when we we're talking before the before today, Ellen, that I mean, days and days of evidence are taken on on consent and grappling with that issue of consent in the in the criminal courts. So, sort of, how does that how how well do you think what the SOA have, have said deals with it from the criminal perspective? Um, well, I, I would say that it, the guidance is sought to summarise something which is very difficult to summarise, and um, it is, as they say, very complex and hard to determine. And, and frankly, it's impossible to summarise in such a short paragraph. Um, I mean, they've done their best, but but it is it's it's very difficult to summarise in that way. I mean, in a criminal context, consent is if he or she agrees by choice and has the freedom and capacity to make that choice. Um, so one, whether a complainant had the capacity to make a choice to take part, and two, whether he or she was in a position to make that choice freely and was not constrained in any way. I think what's interesting is that point two in the guidance under the heading uh, vulnerability um, is, is trying to deal with that point two of whether or not that person was um, in a position to make that choice freely. So under that list, I think they've, they've put in, for example, professional status intoxication. So I think they're trying to deal with it um, by putting in you know, that section vulnerability to expand um, on what we understand consent to mean in that context. Um, as I say, I think it, it's a good effort, but I, I think it's so complex that um, I, I, I wonder where it will go eventually and what will happen next. Yeah, I guess it'll come, we'll see in practice what they, how they handle those issues and what, what they do in sort of in real life. Um, so sort of moving on from consent, but to a related topic, so the guidance says clearly that the SRA is not concerned with consensual sexual relationships between colleagues or between two colleagues engaging in consensual flirtatious conduct, for example, you know, flirty comments at a bar, that kind of thing. But what I don't think that removes altogether the risks of a consensual relationship. Um, and again, conscious that I'm, don't, I'm you know, playing the fun police here, but um, uh, what, what do you think kind of the risks of even consensual relationships between colleagues in a, in a, from a firm perspective? It, it, it's a good point because um, 
sometimes there's no risks at all. Um, once upon a time, lots of people met their other halves in, in, in the workplace. Um, I, I don't know how common that is, is, is anymore. Maybe internet sort of overtaken that. But, you know, these people, professional people often spend a lot of their working, a lot of their time at work. You know, they, they don't, they, they, most, most of the people they meet are people they meet in the workplace or through the workplace. Um, so it's perfectly understandable that people will form connections. Um, it is it is a risk probably when you sort of get to sort of slightly more senior levels because if you think about say the partner body um, if if you have say two partners are married um now it's possible that those two partners will have a very healthy relationship where they regularly disagree on things and would vote differently but there might be a perception amongst the other partners that those partners will always vote in, in the same sort of way on particular issues so there might be sort of this this idea that if you know x votes if x wants something then y will automatically support them because they're married or in a relationship so I think that's a risk in practice. And some firms do sort of have a policy where they say that we can't have uh, partners who are in a relationship with one another. Uh, I don't know uh, that that's necessarily that workable. And it raises questions about who has to leave uh, once you've established you're in a long a long term relationship. There might be diversity issues there. Um, I, I also think that um, there's there's risks around sort of the kind of not so much abuse of power because we're talking here about consensual relationships but sort of the, the the mismatch of power so say for example a senior a partner is in a relationship with a more junior team member um a perfectly consensual relationship no, no, no issues there um but if that person the junior person is promoted um there, there would be a risk that their peers might think that that person had been promoted because of the relationship rather than necessarily because they're sort of that they merited it in their own right and even if they did that sort of perception of fairness is always going to sort of be slightly sort of hanging around in the background um, or, or indeed if there was a difficulty um, or poor performance from the more junior team member it might be more difficult to tackle those performance issues if there, there was a, a senior partner um, especially if they were in the same group or the same team because it, there would be a direct there and it would probably be highly inappropriate for that person in the relationship to be involved so sort of when you get into specifics you start to see there are some practical issues but I don't really know how you deal with it because some firms say well you know no partners can be married together that's difficult in practice there might firms might have a, a disclose your relationship type policy um which are really hard to write, really hard to actually implement. I mean, at what point do you say you're in a relationship? Is it like Facebook where you click a button? Well, once upon a time, people use Facebook. I realise that makes me sound old now. But, you know, where you change your relationship status to, you know, from, from single to it's complicated or, you know, you, 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 it's the more you think about it, the harder it gets. And in some cases, I mean, we've all worked in a workplace where you go, those two are together and they've been together for five years and you had no idea you know th those that's great there's no, no difficulty there um but the people who are sort of you know, engaged in sort of flirtation or play out sort of you know their kind of you know household disputes about the dishwasher in the workplace that's not okay so it's it's very fact specific um and some firms might try and grapple with it with policies and cultural sort of understandings but i don't, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all um approach at all no, I agree. And there's also the risk, isn't there, of when what happens when a relationship breaks up? Um, yeah. that, that, that sort of, and that we see a lot of issues there, I think, where, you know, there's been a consensual relationship, it, it, it breaks up, goes sour, and then there is misconduct in the workplace. And then there is one person trying to pursue the relationship, one person trying to get out of it, or, or whatever, however that plays out. Yeah. But that is very difficult to manage in the workplace. And I think the okay. disclosure issue is also a tricky one, because as you say, how, what, what do you do if people don't comply? And in, yep. in reality, um, the people who are least likely to comply are likely to be the most sort of problematic uh, 
relationships, potentially extramarital affairs, those kinds of things where people are not going to tell anyone because it's a, uh, you know, because because it's you know private and confidential and and they don't want to sort of disclose it to anybody. So the the difficulty is Beth, of course, though, that if if you worried about issues like that of influencing the workplace and the culture of the firm, you would have to act when nothing is happening, when you aren't, you know, get your your policies and your sort of understandings in place beforehand. Because if you start to implement a disclose your relationship policy, uh, whilst whilst you're aware of a relationship or there's a relationship breaking down which is causing that issue, it's going to be a, a knee jerk reaction to a specific circumstance. So you're probably not going to be you're probably going to be designing for a specific set of circumstances. One, but also it's going to look very personal um, and, and be perceived as such so, so to the extent that these uh, practices or working practices or sort of understandings can be implemented in isolation that's probably the most helpful but but usually firms don't don't think they need them until you know they end up with an issue so it's a bit chicken and egg isn't it that's the trouble that's that's a very normal um scenario i mean i think we are seeing an increasing number of kind of you've, you've got to disclose um yeah policies which I mean makes some sense uh, in terms of those reporting line issues and I think that but they isn't it's not always easy to manage yeah. um so just sort of staying on that subject of risks to law firms um the guidance also the guidance also refers to the workplace environment thematic review and and the the guidance they published earlier this year in February um so what are the risks to law firms when there are allegations of sexual misconduct? What are the particular risks to, to the firms rather than the individuals? Andrew? Yeah, well, that guidance was all about exploring the extent to which firm culture plays a role in regulatory misconduct. And I was looking at things like, do, do firms have a speak up culture where people feel that they can speak up if they've suffered harassment uh, at work, among other things? Um, so I think when something like this happens, when a report of sexual misconduct is made, I think firms do now need to consider not just, yes, we need to report this to the SRA and we need to comply with our reporting obligation, but also we need to look at internally as a firm, is, is there anything culturally that contributed to this? So certainly when we have cases where we're acting for firms, the sort of things I'm thinking about where an allegation of sexual misconduct is made against a partner or an employee is, Okay, well, what, what do our policies say about this? You know, has the firm had training on the policies? Did the relevant person attend the training? Um, have there been any complaints about that person before? Because what you wouldn't want to find is that, you know, there had been lots of complaints, perhaps maybe more minor things uh, had been raised about this individual, which had been brushed under the carpet, and then it had escalated into something more serious. I think the SRA may may be concerned if there been there was a track record against someone and there was a there was evidence that the firm hadn't stamped something out at an earlier stage. So these are all things for firms to consider now in light of this guidance. I think we can expect the SRA to be looking a bit more closely at firms, and then of course getting that self-report right, a failure to self-report, it would would we obviously would obviously be a regulatory breach. Uh, because the SRA have made perfectly clear that sexual misconduct matters are taken very seriously, and they are they should be they should be reported to them. Can I just um, come in there, Andrew? Sorry to interrupt. We've had a question on the reporting threshold, and I think this is probably yeah. a good time to to put it to you, which is that just sort of dealing with that threshold for reporting mm. is yeah. if if someone comes to HR in a law firm and says, um, I'm, "I'm reporting the conduct." 
Um, it's not not criminal, but it's something that they feel uncomfortable about or they have been made to feel. You know, so you're, you're not passing that sort of criminal threshold. When when does that obligation to report arise? You did touch on it briefly at the beginning, but just sort of what, what's the threshold for that? Yeah, so the, the threshold is that it's been a serious breach of the regulatory arrangements. And that could either be a sort of a one-off incident, which is very serious, or, uh, or sort of a number of incidents which taken together suggest that there's a serious breach. So I don't know in that particular example whether it would have been someone who touched them inappropriately or whether it's something that is just perhaps slightly inappropriate, but it's been repeated over a pattern of a few weeks or a few or a month. And then you, you'd be looking at it and think, looking at this guidance and you'd be taking it all together and saying, okay, is this something that we need to report, bearing in mind that the self-reporting guidance itself says that firms should generally err on the side of caution. And if they're thinking about reporting, and they usually, they usually, they usually say, if you're thinking about self-reporting, then you probably should self-report because if you've identified it as a potential issue, you're probably halfway there. Certainly, if you're not going to, to report, then you should be documenting the reasons for that. Um, if you don't think that it's, it's quite met the threshold of being a serious breach. And I would say in most cases now, given the emphasis that the SRA has put on, on this, if there's sort of a case of un, unwanted sexual touching, um, we probably are in the, case, in the position where you would be looking to self-report. But if you are not going to report, if you think it's on the line of the sort of clumsy or you know not not sexually motivated for example to, to use the the guidance then you should at least be documenting that um so that if you ever get if, if something else happens or you know, the sra ever ask you well, why wasn't this reported to us you can say we uh, we considered it we took all, all of the factors into account and felt it didn't meet the threshold Presumably, the risk is that someone else reports it if if you, if you as a firm don't do that. Yeah. So, Corin Andrews touched on this a bit, but just from a from a partnership perspective, what other steps can firms be thinking about? Are there constitutional changes they can make to be sort of managing this risk? Are there policies? I think, I think I think there are. Beth, now I'd echo everything that Andrew has already said, and sort of chuck in the pot as well. The importance of leadership and how leadership sets the tone within the business. Those 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 aspects combined with the things Andrew said are, are all vital. From a constitutional point of view, I think that a, a firm needs the full range of tools at its at its sort of disposal, even if it doesn't need to use them. So the power to expel for inappropriate behaviour, the power to remove without cause, because sometimes that's used as a as an opportunity to. Um, to have the, the background to the, the backdrop to a, a difficult conversation where people might be encouraged to leave if it's if it's not so serious as to warrant sort of an immediate expulsion, power to suspend while investigations are ongoing, uh, garden leave if necessary to protect the firm um, after the event, and the power for um, compliance officers, the, the CULP in particular in, in this particular circumstance, management board possibly, to take advice at the expense of the firm and in certain circumstances to withhold that uh, advice from the firm. A classic example might be where the CULP says this is very serious, we need to report it to the SRA. 
and management it's rare but it's possible that management turn around and say this will be embarrassing and you know x is a personal friend and a senior partner we're not going to report this person to the sra that's very very difficult for the cult because they have personal responsibilities it's probably a job threatening moment frankly and they want to be able to take advice to be confident about what their regulatory obligations are as well as sort of the the, the moral conundrum that they they face so there's a there's a suite of powers that i think need to be there hopefully the firm will never need them but better to have them and not need them than the other way around absolutely and i think the other thing that we see in practice is that is that firms often have really um, robust policies in place for staff and for for for, for employees but that they, they don't have it's not always clear whether those whether those policies apply to partners or they just don't have it there's a kind of vacuum where you, when it comes to partner policies i think that's yeah. you know that that has just generally been the case for, for a number of years. I think the SRA, Andrew can chip in here if you think I'm wrong, but I think the SRA will, is starting to expect firms to actually have those kinds of policies that, that deal with partner misconduct and partner and allegations against partners and, and complaints made by partners as well. So grievance procedures for partners and those kinds of things. And actually, Beth, on that point, often performance management uh, is is worse at partner partner level. Quite often, HR manages the uh, the stuff, but then HR isn't involved in sort of partner performance management. And there's there's sort of a worry about feelings and that sort of shading between owner and manager can sometimes influence the um, conduct and sort of performance management processes applied to partners as opposed to staff. Yeah, that's really true. Andrew, just sort of looking forward. are there any other rule changes that we need to be thinking about, particularly from the from the SRA, but particularly in respect of um, sexual misconduct? Yes, uh, so there's a current consultation on the sanctions guidance, and the that is going to make clear that where there is a an accusation of sexual misconduct, which is found proved, the sort of starting point for a sanction will be a suspension. So historically, a lot of these sexual misconduct cases in the tribunal have been dealt with by way of fines. There was an initial consultation last year where most people responding to the consultation said they didn't think fines were an appropriate way of sanctioning sexual misconduct. We now have this new consultation on on the proposed guidance and that essentially says, unless there are exceptional circumstances, which might be a sort of a one-off event where there was some mitigating factor uh, a suspension will be the starting point when they're considering a sanction. Um, so that's the that so increased sanctions. And then the second thing is there's a consultation which closed at the end of May, and we should be hearing uh, where that's going fairly shortly on this requirement uh, on individuals and firms to treat colleagues fairly, uh, not unfairly discriminate against them and to challenge behaviour that doesn't meet that standard. So that, and that last sentence is particularly controversial, you know, this requirement to challenge uh, poor behaviour by others and and a failure to do that could amount to a regulatory offence. So there's going to be more, more, I think, pressure placed on partners in a firm, for example, if they see things going on that are not right, if they see perhaps another partner behaving badly towards an associate or anyone in for that matter, if they don't step in and challenge that behaviour, they could be found either individually to be in breach of that rule or as a firm to be in breach of that rule. So 
sort of requirement to challenge behaviour is another sort of tool in the arsenal, I think, that the SRA could potentially have in the future if this comes in to challenge sort of sexual misconduct, both at an individual level, but also at a collective level. And I think we would hope to get some guidance from the SRA about, A, what challenge means in those circumstances. Do they mean challenge in the moment or do they mean, you know, challenge more broadly, you know, at the sort of um, structural level? And also the, the application of that obligation to challenge, that positive duty to challenge and, and how, how, it, how, how they might treat it differently for, for a junior lawyer to a more senior lawyer in, in the firm. Yeah, they did say in the consultation that they recognised it would obviously be more difficult for a trainee to, to call out behaviour of a partner than, a, than another partner. So on the face of it, this rule is going to apply to all solicitors. Um, but I think the guidance will probably make clear that it's in practice more likely to be targeted at senior individuals that see bad behaviour and don't take steps to, to stamp it out. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, everybody. It is just ticking over to 10 o'clock. I think we have finished all the things we were going to say. Um, so unless anyone has any further questions, if you would like to ask questions, not through the chat, if you are happy to turn your um, camera on and ask them or, or put them in the chat, we will try and deal with them. Um, but otherwise, I'd just like to thank my excellent panellists. It's been such an interesting discussion. Um, so Ellen Pert, Corinne Staves, Andrew Pavlovich, thank you so much for being here today and thank everyone else for joining. Have a happy weekend when you make it.